class, Nurse Kylie here. In today's discussion, we continue our exploration of cardiac disorders and focus specifically on cardiac complications. Now, this is a vital topic that requires a solid foundation of cardiac knowledge, hence our last two discussions. Today, we are going to get into more specifics and really close the loop on our cardiac discussion, as next week, we begin respiratory. Our discussion is facilitated by chapters 28 and 29 in Bruner and Stuttart's Textbook of Medical Surgical Nursing by Hinkle and Cheever. Now, just a heads up that this episode will be a little bit longer than usual, as we have some important information to get to. Let's get right to it. There are several cardiac complications that can occur, so let's focus on the four main groups. Structural problems, cardiomyopathy, infectious and inflammatory diseases, and heart failure. The structures of the heart include the four main valves, which controls the blood flow through the heart. Valves that separate the atria from the ventricles are the tricuspid and mitral valves. The pulmonic valve separates the right ventricle and pulmonic artery. The aortic valve separates the left ventricle from the aorta. Valves open and close to allow blood in or out of the heart. When they begin to show signs of dysfunction, problems arise that can affect the whole body. Since there are a few different types of disorders, I'm going to focus on the ones that cause major problems. Mitral regurgitation can cause pulmonary congestion and can present as severe congestive heart failure. Mitral regurgitation that causes symptoms is usually acute and due to a heart attack. Upon assessment, a systolic murmur is heard. Treatment is the same as CHF, as ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, or ARBs, and beta blockers are used. Surgical intervention is usually warranted if there are symptoms and a surgical repair, aka volvuloplasty, or valve replacement would occur. Mitral stenosis is when blood flow from the left atrium to the left ventricle is obstructed. Rheumatic endocarditis is the usual culprit, as it thickens the mitral valve leaflets, which then often fuse together, causing rigidity in the opening of the valve and eventually impedes flow. Dyspnea upon exertion is the first symptom as it progresses. Fatigue and exercise intolerance also progress. Upon assessment, the pulse is weak and irregular as atrial fibrillation can be occurring due to the extra strain placed upon the atrium. A dry cough or wheezing may occur if the atrium becomes enlarged due to the extra workload. Treatment focuses on minimizing CHF symptoms, but anticoagulants are also introduced to minimize the risk for clots. If AFib is present, cardioversion is used to restore normal rhythm. Surgical intervention may become warranted. Aortic regurgitation is when blood is returned to the left ventricle during diastole, rather than the ventricle completely emptying. This is what we call leaky valve, and blood can come and go as it wants rather than being completely shut out. Faulty leaflets or improper closing of the valve due to inflammation can make this occur. In an effort to restore the blood flow, the left ventricle will enlarge so that it can increase the effort to expel the blood into circulation. Patients with symptoms are advised to refrain from physical exertion. Secondary problems, such as CHF and dysrhythmias, are treated as prescribed. Aortic valve replacement or valvuloplasty, are performed before left ventricle failure occurs and is recommended for any symptomatic patient. Aortic stenosis occurs when the opening between the left ventricle and aorta narrows. This is usually due to calcifications at the site that may be caused by proliferative or inflammatory changes. Sometimes this occurs due to leaflet malformation. I myself have a bicuspid or two-leaf rather than three-leaf aortic valve, so this places me at risk for aortic stenosis. 
Oftentimes, patients are asymptomatic but can begin to develop exertional dyspnea, orthopnea, peripheral neurovascular disease, and pulmonary edema. Assessments may find murmurs but also vibration when a hand is placed over the base of the heart. Definitive treatment is a valve replacement, but medications to treat any dysrhythmias or left ventricular failure can be used. A TAVI, T-A-V-I, or transcatheter aortic valve implantation procedure can be used for those who are not surgical candidates, i.e. they're too high risk. Changing gears, let's talk about cardiomyopathy. Cardiomyopathy is described by Hinkle and Cheever as disease of the heart muscle that is associated with cardiac dysfunction. There are two major classifications, structural and functional, that include dilated cardiomyopathy, DCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, HCM, restrictive or constrictive cardiomyopathy, RCM, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy slash dysplasia, also known as ARVC-D, and unclassified cardiomyopathy. A patient can present with more than one classification depending on their pathology. The American Heart Association decided to simplify these classifications, thank God, into two categories, primary cardiomyopathies and secondary cardiomyopathies. Primary cardiomyopathies focus on the heart muscle and secondary cardiomyopathies show myocardial involvement, but secondary to another disease process. For the sake of our discussion, we are going to focus on primary cardiomyopathies. Dilated cardiomyopathy, again DCM, is the most common. This presents as dilated ventricles. Restrictive cardiomyopathy, RCM, is caused by rigid ventricular walls that causes diastolic dysfunction. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, HCM, is an autosomal dominant condition where the heart muscle asymmetrically increases in size and mass. That's pretty interesting. Arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy slash dysplasia occurs when the myocardium is overrun and replaced by scar and adipose tissue. Regardless of the type, cardiomyopathy may lead to heart failure, lethal dysrhythmias, and sadly, death. Medication, dietary restrictions, and exercise slash rest regimens are all part of the treatment plan. Sometimes a pacemaker is needed. In some instances, a heart transplant may also be needed. Infections can attack the heart at any level. Cardiac infections are named based upon which layer of the heart they infiltrate and affect the most. Infective endocarditis affects the endocardium, myocarditis affects the myocardium, and pericarditis, well, you guessed it, affects the pericardium. Rheumatic endocarditis is a specific type of infective endocarditis, as it is caused by acute rheumatic fever, which occurs in school-aged children after an illness with group A beta-hemolytic streptococcal pharyngitis. Rheumatic heart disease may occur causing a heart murmur, cardiomegaly, pericarditis, and heart failure. This is a preventable endocarditis when there's proper treatment. Infective endocarditis is a microbial infection of the inner lining of the heart. Most often, it occurs in those with foreign objects inside of their heart, i.e. implants such as artificial heart valves, pacemakers, or with structural defects, such as valve disorders, since bacteria can collect more easily at the site of the defect, causing a vegetative growth. Sometimes, it is seen in IV drug users as staph from the skin travels to the heart. Symptoms include fever and heart murmur, as well as petechiae, small nodules in the pads of fingers and toes, 
macules on the palms and soles of their feet, hemorrhages within the eyes, as well as symptoms of cardiomegaly, heart failure, tachycardia, or splenomegaly. Management is outpatient antibiotic therapy via PICC line for two to six weeks every four hours. Sometimes surgery is required if the infection does not respond to the antibiotics or if the infection is at the prosthetic valve site or is caused by a mobile vegetation or the patient has heart failure, heart block, or continues to have complications. Myocarditis is inflammation within the myocardium that can cause heart dilation, thrombi along the heart wall, cause involvement of the coronary vessels, and degeneration of the muscle fibers. Symptoms often are mild, but cardiomyopathy and heart failure can occur. Symptoms depend on the type of infection, how much damage there is, and whether the myocardium can recover. Patients often report flu-like symptoms, but sometimes sudden cardiac death or severe CHF can occur. Assessment is hard because no abnormalities are noted. Management includes antibiotics, bed rest, anti-embolism stockings, and range of motion exercises, both passive and active. Pericarditis is the inflammation of the pericardium, which is the sac that surrounds the heart. Due to the inflammation, fluid can begin to accumulate, causing a pericardial effusion. Pain is often a primary symptom and is accompanied by pericardial friction rub. When listening to the heart, you can hear the rub as it is heard with the heartbeat. Sometimes it can be hard to detect or differentiate between a pleural friction rub, but if the patient holds their breath, the pericardial friction rub will still be heard. A major complication of pericarditis is cardiac tamponade. Upon assessment, heart sounds will be distant or imperceptible as blood flow is restricted from entering the heart for proper perfusion. The patient will show jugular vein distension, as well as the Beck triad of hypotension, muffled heart sounds, and elevated jugular pressure. The nurse will immediately notify the provider and provide the patient for periocardiosynthesis. Heart failure is our last topic for today's discussion and results from structural or functional disorders that impairs the ventricle's ability to fill or eject blood. In the past, it has been known as congestive heart failure as patients can experience pulmonary congestion with edema. There are two types of heart failure with the most common being systolic heart failure and the other diastolic heart failure. Systolic heart failure is when there is a weakened heart muscle that causes ventricular contraction to be altered causing difficulty in ejecting the blood from the ventricles. Diastolic heart failure is when the heart muscle is stiff and non-compliant, making it difficult for the ventricle to fill. To determine the type of heart failure, the heart's ejection fraction is measured. The EF is calculated by subtracting the total amount of blood in the left ventricle at the end of systole from the amount present at the end of diastole. It is measured as a percentage of blood that is ejected. In diastolic heart failure, the EF remains normal, so it is called heart failure with preserved EF. Even with a decreased EF, the severity of heart failure is determined by symptoms and are classified as stage A through D. Symptoms are that of fluid overload, including dyspnea, orthopnea, cough, pulmonary crackles, weight gain, dependent edema, ascites, JVD, sleep disturbances due to air hunger or anxiety, fatigue, and those of poor perfusion, including decreased exercise tolerance, lightheadedness, altered mental status, resting tachycardia, pallor, and cool extremities. Medical management is aimed at minimizing symptoms and includes medications, exercise, oxygen supplementation, and dietary changes, 
but could also include surgically implanted devices as well as cardiac transplantation. As we conclude our discussion for today, I wanted to end with a brief discussion on pulmonary edema as it ties the cardiac and respiratory systems together. As the heart is the supplier of blood for the whole body, when it's affected, so is the body's oxygenation. If blood cannot circulate properly, the heart must work harder, but so do the lungs. Left ventricular failure causes acute pulmonary edema, also known as flash pulmonary edema, and can lead to acute respiratory failure and death. Both systems need to work together to promote adequate oxygenation to the whole body, and when one is compromised, the other is at risk. Keep that in mind as we begin our respiratory discussions next week. Until next time, keep on accelerating. 